Well, every Sunday, every Sunday is a, a joyful day to be in the house of the Lord where his special presence is among us. Uh, today is, is a uniquely kind of joyful day because we're going to be witnessing in a, in a few minutes the baptism of Gabe Hawley. And that's going to be a wonderful thing. It's going to be a time of rejoicing with him. Um, so as we do each week in anticipating the Lord's Supper, which we will not be taking this morning, I encourage us to anticipate, even now, beginning now, this baptism. And I want to remind us, as I often have done and will again, that Gabe's baptism, in, in witnessing his baptism, you are, remember, witnessing your own baptism. So I, I just don't want this, it, it's, it's very exciting for Gabe, and I don't want to detract from that and for what God has done in his life. But I don't want you to be like, oh, good for him, you know. Good for you, right? No. It's, it's praise to be to God for what he has done in you. This is not just about Gabe, it's about your baptism. And that's what I really want us to see this morning. Plus, it takes some pressure off Gabe. He realizes even more that this isn't about him. So Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 that there is only one baptism, which that's such a beautiful reality. What it, what it means, very logically, is that when you witness a baptism, you're witnessing the very baptism in which you have shared as a believer in Jesus Christ. We're witnessing all over again. You know, like the Lord's Supper, we get to take every week. Baptism is one of those things that's one and done, Right? And yet, and yet, at a different level, every single time someone gets baptized, I get to see my baptism again. I get to see it again and again and again and again. And that is what we need to really lay hold of today. So this morning, I want to take some time to help us get there and remind us of the true meaning and the true beauty of baptism, uh, which is difficult for us in our day and in our culture. Uh, compared... Compared to the Old Covenant in, in the Old Testament, with all of its outward symbols and types, if you read the Old Testament, you know there's a lot of stuff going on externally, right? A lot of stuff on the outside. We could say that compared to that, the New Covenant is very inward. So we, we say it's, it's more spiritual in terms of the inward man. That's not to say that the Old Covenant, under the Old Covenant, the heart didn't matter. And maybe you've questioned this sometimes. What's all this about the outward in the Old Testament? Did the heart not matter? And of course it did. But here's the key. The Mosaic Covenant itself was external. It was typological, okay? Here's, here's the deal. The Mosaic Covenant was outward. It was not inward, period, as a covenant, it pointed to the need for an inward transformation. But it was not designed and it was not intended to bring that inward transformation about. It was just a schoolmaster leading us to Christ who would bring about the inward change. So how then were believers who lived under the Old, Co- old Covenant saved? If the Old Covenant was an external thing, an outward covenant, how were the believers under the old covenant saved? And they were saved the same way you are, same way I am, by faith through grace alone. It's always been that way since the beginning. So they were saved then. Uh, you say, how can that be if the old covenant was external? Well, they were saved through the provisions of the new covenant, which was not yet inaugurated, but those provisions that Christ would make available, were applied to them, we use the word proleptically. So here's the definition of that word. It is the representation or assumption of a future act or development as if presently existing or accomplished. So God, God, in his grace and mercy, took the provisions of the new covenant and applied them backwards to the people of God as they exercised faith in his promises of the coming Messiah. That's how that worked. But now, once the new covenant came and was actually inaugurated through Christ's blood, 
all the outward symbols, all the outward types associated with that old covenant were obsolete. They were done. We don't, we don't do those things anymore. So John chapter 4, Jesus said to the woman at the well, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming, and we know it's now here, when neither is this in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Not on a physical mountain, the, with, with the physical city, with the physical temple there, earthly temple. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Now, I'm, I'm, we're going to get now to baptism in a minute, okay? But the new covenant then, which is what we are a part of, is not something outward. It's not a type of anything. It is the substance. It's the real deal. It's the inward reality to which the outward external old covenant was always pointing and showing people their need for. Having said that, see, now I set all that up because now we're wondering, what's this? Do you see where we're going with that? What's that? Because that, that's actually real water, right? And we're actually going to do something physical up there. What place does that have under the new covenant? Would it not seem to fit under the old, and then shouldn't it not be rendered obsolete? And as a result of, uh, well, let me just, I think I said it better here. For all this, then, there are two outward physical ordinances, or I'll use the word sacraments, and I'll explain that word in a minute, that are fundamental. They are essential to our full Here's in the word in your handout is participation in the blessings of the new covenant. We've we got to grasp that. Because I think in our day and in our culture, at some level, we don't really know what to do with baptism. And as a result, we do a lot of wrong things with baptism, even in our own minds and how we think about it and how we approach it. This reality that Baptism is essential to our full participation in the new covenant blessings. Okay, that's the, that's the big deal. That is a reality that in our, I'm going to call it our hyper-spiritualized. You say, can you be too spiritual? Well, depending on how we use the word, yes. We live in a hyper-spiritualized Culture where, where symbols and physical things like this, we don't know what to do. What, is, what, what do we make sense of? How do we make sense of it? Also, our hyper-individualized Christianity. We are in constant grave danger, danger of minimizing the beauty of baptism. So not only are the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper outward, physical, let's just acknowledge that, rituals, and I don't use the word ritual in the terms of it's just an empty ritual. But it is, in the true sense of the word, a ritual that God has given us. So it's outward and physical, contra our hyper-spiritualized culture. And they also assume ecclesiastical or church authority. Baptism and the Lord's Supper take place, ought to take place biblically under the authority vested by Christ in the local church. But there again, we run up afoul of our hyper-individualized culture. So what is baptism? We need to be aware of how our unique cultural context has in fact deadened us to the true meaning and significance of baptism in the Lord's Supper. So let's, let's just take a little journey to see what we're about to witness and the beauty and power and significance of it. We're confronted, first of all, with the essential importance of baptism when God himself sent John to, in your handout, baptize with water. Okay, this is the God who is spirit. The God who is spirit. 
about to inaugurate the new covenant through the coming of the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he sends John and he says, now what should we do to get ready for this? Let's baptize with water. Shows you it's a big deal. John 1.33. I myself, says John, did not know him, Jesus, as the Messiah, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me. And I don't know how God, by the Holy Spirit, made it clear to John. Did he speak to him audibly? He said, go baptize with water. Do it. Luke chapter 7, verse 30. The Pharisees and the scholars of the law rejected God's purpose for themselves. And how do you know they rejected God's purpose for themselves? Well, we could say, well, they didn't believe in Jesus. That's true. But, but Luke says it like this. They refused to be baptized. That's how you know they rejected God's purpose for them because they were not baptized by John. Now, we might say, well, that's John's baptism. Well, his baptism was preparatory, right? Sometimes we can wonder what, what, what John's baptism was, right? Well, it was preparatory. Because it was administered prior to Christ's death and resurrection and the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, it couldn't be administered in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So when John baptized, he wasn't baptizing in the name of the triune God. The fullness of God's self-revelation in the gospel was not yet here. And that had implications for what his baptism was. It couldn't carry all the weight of meaning that this will. And yet, John's baptism is still very closely connected to Christian baptism as its forerunner. And it carried much of the same meaning. So if we read in Mark chapter 1, verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. If you use some of the exact same language for Christian baptism. So they're very tightly connected. Not only did God command John to baptize with water, it was even God's will that Jesus should submit himself to this baptism. So in Matthew 3, John would have prevented Jesus saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Do any of us struggle with that? Like, what was the big deal about water and baptism, and why did Jesus have to be baptized? What is the big deal? Then John consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, this this is how big of a deal it was, the heavens were opened to him, And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So let's just take, let's just look at that for a minute. When we when we really think about it, what we see here is that water baptism was an essential, necessary part of Jesus' identification with sinners. Okay, follow that. Jesus didn't fully identify with you as a sinner until he was baptized. What did Jesus say? It was necessary to fulfill our righteousness. So if Jesus has not yet identified with sinners until he is baptized, that helps you to see how essential and necessary baptism must be for the sinners themselves. Do you follow that? Jesus hasn't identified fully with me until he's baptized. Well, if I've not been baptized, how is he identifying with me as a sinner? Isaiah said that the Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. And so Matthew tells us that without Jesus' water baptism, the righteous will of God would never have been fulfilled. That's the big deal this was. We could say then that it's in my baptism that I see me as the one with whom Jesus came to be identified. It's in my baptism that I see visibly 
how the work of Christ in his life and in his death was for me. It was on my behalf. Because in my baptism now, I see how he has identified himself with me. Finally, it is specifically at the water baptism of Jesus. It was at that moment when Jesus said, I will submit myself to water baptism, that God anointed him with the Holy Spirit, announced his good pleasure with his son, and therefore his good pleasure with all the work of salvation he was about to accomplish. And so we see that the water baptism of Jesus has played an exceedingly important role in the history of redemption. At some level, it's still a mystery to me. I don't quite fully, fully grasp, I don't think, how wonderful this reality is. But the fact is that the water baptism of Jesus played a pivotal role in God's plan of redemption. The next thing we see with regard to the importance of baptism is that Jesus, through his disciples, baptized his followers. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. And then finally, before he ascended into heaven, Jesus commanded the church to baptize with water. I just like to camp out there, and just that's what he did. Matthew 28 says, And Jesus came and said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth, see this, see this big context, has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So baptism is given to us, the church, by our King, Jesus Christ himself. As I often point out when I'm talking to a candidate for baptism, we don't baptize just because it's something the church came up with or something. This is a direct imperative from our Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, it's why we baptize and are baptized, because it's his clear command. But now, the question Why would Jesus include baptism as such an essential fundamental part even of the Great Commission? So he says, go out and make disciples of all the nations. And then he puts within that commission, baptize them. Why? What's the big deal about this? What is the real meaning and significance in your handout? Why does Jesus sanctify? And I use sanctify in the most sacred sense of that word. Why does he sanctify baptism? By commanding it be performed in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Under the external Old Covenant, water was used as a means of ritually purifying people from different kinds of ritual defilement. If you touched a dead body, you were ritually unclean. And then they had a special water mixed with the ashes of a heifer to to be used for a ritual purification. So Numbers 19 says, the ashes of the heifer shall be kept for the water for impurity. For the congregation of the people of Israel, whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and so be clean. Obviously, that's an external outward thing. You, you, weren't, you weren't putting water mixed with the ashes of this heifer that had been sacrificed and then burned. You didn't put that on your body and then your heart was cleansed from its sin. It was external, typological. It was pointing to your need for something deeper. It's in light of that background of this outward cleansing from ritual defilement symbolizing the inward cleansing of my heart, which, how do you get in there, brothers and sisters, to clean that up? Right? I, I mean, if I get dirty, I, we, can go, we can go clean ourselves up, but how do we get into our heart? How do we get to the soul to clean that? 
That's one of those things where who can ascend into heaven, right? Who can do this? But this represented the inward cleansing of the heart, Ezekiel 36. God says, I, what a wonderful word, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean, not just externally, but from all your uncleannesses. From all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Could we do that? Could you do that? Could you accomplish that? Who can do that? There's only one. And it's his promise that he, that he will to those who come to him in faith. He says, I will remove this, the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So that was in the Old Testament. Now we come to the New Testament, John chapter 3. A discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. This is the kind of thing they would talk about. We wouldn't talk about it, but they would, because they were familiar with the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. They came to John, and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, that's Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. What does that tell you? Get back into their day. They look at Jesus baptizing and they see his baptism in the light of all those Old Testament rituals of purification from ritual defilement. And so they also see John's baptism, or Jesus' baptism, in the light of that clean water that God said in Ezekiel he would sprinkle on his people in order to radically change and cleanse their hearts. In other words, they'd be so cleaned up that they wouldn't be the same person anymore. They'd be so purified that you wouldn't recognize them really as the same man. The old man would be gone, the new man would be here. That's how radical this cleansing would be. And yet even John's baptism, and in a sense the baptism of Jesus prior to his cross, was pointing forward to a reality not yet come. Today. We are here in the days of fulfillment, the new covenant. And so the true reality is here in its fullness. And even now, this this inward cleansing, which how do you put your fingers on it, right? How How do you grasp this wonderful miracle? How do you grasp it? You say, well, I just think about it. It's, it's deeper than that. It's bigger than that. It's more wonderful. I don't know that we ever can. Right? And so even now, this cleansing of our hearts is sometimes described with, still, the Old Testament imagery of washing with water. In fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy, Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a true heart There's the heart. It's inward, isn't it? It's inward. In full assurance of faith, with our hearts, and then he uses this imagery, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our our bodies, now he goes purely to the external. Our bodies washed with pure water. And brothers and sisters, our minds can begin then to picture and to grasp a little more vividly, the reality of our inward cleansing and what the forgiveness of our sins really means. John 3, 5 says, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, and and I don't think that's necessarily referring to baptism, it's just referring to Ezekiel's imagery of water. Born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So again, what a miracle it is to be so completely washed, so completely cleansed from my sin, from my filth, that I have actually been made a brand new person. Born, as John says, from above. Born again. What a miracle it is to be so completely washed with not a speck of filth remaining, right? Positionally in Christ and cleansed 
that I can now draw near to God. Because here's the thing. If you had a speck of filth remaining positionally in Christ, you could not draw near to God. It is only as we stand perfectly, holy, cleansed, and purified by his blood that we can now draw near to him, as it says in Hebrews. And as it says then in Hebrews 10.29, we can draw near no longer with hearts that condemn us, but with a true heart, as, as the author of Hebrews says, in full assurance of faith. How good it is to be clean. And it's this miracle that unveils the true meaning and significance of baptism. Because the water of baptism is an outward visible sign signifying to us the inward invisible reality of the washing away of my sins by the precious shed blood of Jesus Christ. It can no longer be a type. That's not a type, is it? Because types point forward. They're just shadows pointing to the substance. This is not a type pointing forward. It is a sign and now even a seal of that which is already here. So the whole character and nature of baptism is fundamentally different from all the Old Testament rituals of purification. They were types pointing ahead to something not here. This is a sign and a seal of that which has come, that which is in our midst, even today, even right now, through the Spirit. So Ananias said to Saul, Brother Saul, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. It's It's here. We we tend to spend most of our time trying to explain what Ananias did not mean here. Rise and be be baptized and wash away your sins. And that makes us uncomfortable. And so we spend lots of ink and lots of time trying to explain what it doesn't mean. And there's appropriateness to that, but I'm not going to do that this morning. Because then we miss the true beauty of what Peter, of what Ananias did mean. The Apostle Peter says, baptism now saves you. And as Protestants, we sure wish those words weren't in the Bible, right? We, we struggle with that. He said it. Baptism now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. Now he does clarify. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. That's the inward through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we ask then, what's the connection between the outward and the inward? Right? And people have answered this in different ways. Roman Catholics answer it one way. The Lutherans answered another way. Presbyterians answered another way. Peter is clear, and of course the Baptists answered another way, or the Reformed. Peter is clear that the literal waters of baptism do not magically save us. But Peter is saying this, that we are saved by what the waters of baptism signify. We are saved by what those waters signify. And especially when the baptism happens. Right now they're just, whatever. And so intimate is the connection here, and this is where we struggle because we're like not like this in our culture. So intimate is the connection between the outward sign and seal and the inward reality, so close and beautiful is that connection that Peter refers to the inward reality by means of the outward sign. Baptism, he says, now saves you. And he's talking about physical baptism. We'll see that in a minute. How can Peter do that? He does it not because those waters of that baptism actually save someone. We'll see that's obviously, actually regenerates their heart. That in itself does it. But Peter can say this because the water of baptism and our full immersion in that water is a divinely given, divinely instituted sign. Who told us to do this? Who gave us water? Who told us to immerse? Who told us to baptize? Jesus himself. And then there's more. Christian baptism is a sign and a seal of our vital living union with Jesus Christ. We have cleansing 
and then union. So Romans 6, 3-4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus? Now a lot of people will say that this is spirit baptism. It must be spirit baptism. Well, we're kind of missing the point there when we, dif- when we differentiate ultimately. Because the water baptism is what's the physical and outward sign of that happening. So Paul is using the outward symbol for the inward reality. We were baptized into Christ Jesus. We were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We know as Christians, we're, we, are, we are in union with Christ. We are in him, Paul loves to say. I don't grasp that. What, what, what is that? It, it, it's a mystery, but it's a reality. And it's from that reality that all the blessings of my salvation are constantly flowing to me, second by second, day by day. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, it's not for us to start trying to imagine mystically or something what it looks like to be in Christ. No, what, what, what Paul wants us to see is the practical result. And what's the practical result of being in Christ? Well, so complete and so real is your union with Jesus Christ that you have even, in your handout, died with him. See, that's what matters. That's what we think about. Don't spend your time in some mystical world trying to figure out what it looks like, which is what many people do today. Look at the practical effect and result of it. Through my union with him, I have died with him to sin. That's the reality. And I have been raised with Jesus now to a new life that shares in the power of his resurrection. So we read in Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him. That's our union with him. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. The life he lives... He lives to God, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Here's the key words, in Christ Jesus. Now, here's the the question. And this is one of the things we miss, I think, most often. I'm going to ask you this question. You you figure out the answer. What, What do you think it is? How is it that you see in our baptism the sign of our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. How do you see that in baptism? So, a couple options. We know that the waters symbolize something that cleans. But now are they, they're symbolizing something else. Do the waters symbolize Christ? It's like the water now a symbol of Jesus. So that when we are immersed in the water, it represents being immersed in Christ. Well, that seems to lack any biblical warrant. I cannot, I cannot see that strongly in Scripture. Okay, what's another option? Maybe the waters of baptism, they don't represent Jesus. Maybe they represent the earth. Maybe they represent the ground in which bodies are buried. So that our immersion in the water represents our being buried in the ground. Then when we're raised out of the water, of course, it represents our resurrection from death to life. That's closer to the mark, and, but it's, it doesn't hit it. Because I don't believe there's any biblical warrant for saying that the water represents dirt. Or rock in which people were buried. Remember, you might say, well, what's the big deal? It's just an acted parable. No, the water is really important. The water represents cleansing. Water does not represent Jesus here. It does not represent the ground in which a body is buried. So then, how does baptism represent our union with Christ in his death and resurrection? 
As it happens in the Old Testament, water was a symbol of something else. It was a symbol of destruction and death and of divine, in your handout, divine judgment. So let's go back and read now in 1 Peter. Peter is explicitly clear. Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited, in the days of Noah. All of a sudden we've got Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which, notice the in which, in this ark, a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. What water? The water of the flood. And the waters of the flood were all about judgment and death and destruction. The wrath of God poured out. They were saved through those waters. Peter says, this water, and then he clarifies. Are you talking about the waters of Noah's flood? No, he says, this water, or baptism, which corresponds to the water of Noah's flood. This this water now, this baptism now, saves you. Okay, what, are you putting it together? What Peter's saying is that the waters of the flood are a type of the waters of baptism. So you picture the, whole, the earth submerged in raging waters. That's the waters that we, that we have there. That, that's, that, this is the substance of that, in a sense. Okay, they pointed forward to these waters of baptism. So Noah and his family passed through the waters of God's judgment, safe in the ark, and so they were saved through water. Do you see the beautiful picture? In this water of baptism and our immersion in that water, we have a picture of our passing in Christ and with Christ safely. Safely through death and judgment and all the wrath of God poured out. Because the wrath of God we know and his justice and his righteousness was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. And now we have passed in him safely through all of that. It it has not touched us, has it? It has not touched us. We've passed through it and now into out of that into a new life lived in the power of the Spirit. What other way in any wisdom of man could we have conceived of to escape, to pass safely through as sinners the holy and righteous judgments of God? If you look for any other way, you won't find it. If you put your trust in any other way, you'll end up in the end under the condemnation of the righteous, holy judgments of God. But there is a way to pass safely through. And so Peter can say that we too, we too, are saved through water. Not by the water, but through the water. Baptism is the outward sign of this, of this inward invisible reality of our union with Christ. We are so united with Christ that we have passed with him, with Jesus, through the waters of death and judgment and the wrath of God poured out and into life. So from now on, when you see baptisms, don't think of the water as the ground in which you're being buried. Think of the water as the judgments of God through which a person passes safely, united with Christ. And is, yeah. So intimate is this connection that Paul refers to the inward reality by means of the outward sign. 
We have been buried with Christ, he says, by baptism into death, into death but in Christ. So that death now is not destruction for us. It is not ultimately judgment. It is the means to life. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And why can, why can Paul refer to the inward reality by means of the outward sign? He can do that because the waters of baptism are a divinely given, divinely instituted sign given to us by God himself. Finally, third, baptism is the visible sign of our membership in the church of Jesus Christ. Acts 2.41 says, Those who received Peter's word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added to what? Added to the Lord, Luke says. Added to the Lord by being added to his church, to his body. How are we added to the Lord? By being added to his body. And what is his body? It is the church. So we are added to the church through baptism. This is a physical reality here. Ephesians 4, there is one body and one spirit, Paul says. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord to whom we are added. One faith. One baptism. I love how Paul does that. I'm so, I mean, he teaches this there because he just talked about one spirit, one hope, one call, one Lord, one faith. We could think of those all as more inward realities. Of course, our Lord is a physically in the flesh, resurrected. But then he adds to all those inward spiritual realities at the very end, one baptism. If anything, we learn this morning not to minimize the beauty and importance of baptism. The one water baptism, the one of which we have all partaken. And I look around at you and I don't know individually which one, but I see a group of, you know what I see? I see a group of baptized believers. That's what I see. And I say, oh yeah, that's my baptism. And there's the reality of the church. There's the reality of the body of Christ. And therefore, we are individually members one of another. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen says, in one spirit... We were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So Gabe is in a moment going to be baptized into one body. I'm using the outward sign to refer to the inward reality that God accomplishes by his power. We see then that in baptism, We see in baptism our cleansing from sin, our union with Christ as we pass safely through the waters of judgment, and our membership in the church, which is Christ's body. But now here's where the reformers got into some arguments. Is baptism just a bare symbol? Because that's what we do. Well, baptism isn't really anything. It's It's just a bare picture are symbol of these things. But if that's the case, I ask you, what are we supposed to do with the language of Scripture? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. And he does go on to say, calling on your name. So that's, of course, essential. Baptism now saves you. You're now saved through water. We have been buried with him by baptism into death. We've been added to the church and made partakers of the one body of Christ in our one baptism. What's the meaning of that language? You can maybe understand now why there was debate and dissension over these things. And yet, I believe the key here is to see, is just to see this, that baptism signifies, and I've said this many times, but I don't know if we ever fully really grasp this, that baptism signifies not what we have done or even what we are saying. And that's usually where we start out. It does do that indirectly. 
But baptism signifies what God has done and what God is saying. So in this baptism, we have a visual word. We have God speaking in a visual word to Gabe and to all of us. This is what helps us to see the essentially sacramental character of baptism. I believe it's important that we are able to call baptism a sacrament. And yet I understand the problem because I do not mean sacrament in the Roman Catholic sense. And that is a problem for me in using the word because then it, it can promote confusion. But now that we have this background, I am using the word sacrament in the sense of a holy, sacred, visible sign and seal of an inward saving grace. That is what baptism is. and I'm going to use sacrament for that. If baptism was primarily about a horizontal public confession or proclamation of faith. So why do we do baptism? So, so Gabe can make sure all of you know he's a Christian. Well, if that was the real meaning and point of baptism, then we can't really make sense of the Bible's teaching on baptism in the first place. Second of all, we can't make sense of the Ethiopian eunuch's baptism, who was baptized with only one witness, Philip, who he probably never saw again in his life, out on a, on a desert road with no one else there. Let us, let us let this sink deep into our hearts. Baptism represents not my initiative, but God's initiative. It represents not my word, but God's word. Not my action, but God's action. This is at the heart of what a sacrament is. This again is what helps us to see the essentially sacramental character of baptism which is administered in the holy name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, this also is what helps us to see why baptism is appropriate in worship. Because now we see that it's not a horizontal thing in its essence. It is essentially a vertical thing where God speaks to us And we respond as a people calling on his name. It's in and through our baptism then that God speaks to us and says, and and as you witness Gabe's baptism, remember you're witnessing your own, and so you see and hear afresh God's word to you in your baptism. I have saved you. I have washed you. I have cleansed you your heart from sin, just as surely as you've been immersed in these cleansing baptismal waters. I have united you with Christ in his death and his resurrection, just as surely as you have passed safely through these baptismal waters of death and judgment. I have joined you to my church. This is what God says he has done. I did it. I did it. I have done it just as surely as you've partaken in this one baptism of all believers. Now here's the thing again. God is not magically speaking whenever we just do that. Like you couldn't just have anyone do it and God said it. No. No, we don't compel God to speak by doing a baptism. We simply acknowledge that it is God who is speaking in our baptism by faith. By faith in his word. And his promise. See. We need to avoid all errors here. And sometimes that means walking a very straight line. But, but sometimes we don't want to walk the straight line. And so we veer off to here. We veer off to here. God speaks in our baptism. And we acknowledge it's him speaking through faith in his word and promise. And so we see what a wonderful gift baptism is. 
and how essential it is. Not to our justification. Baptism is not essential to our justification. Hear me saying that. But it is essential. And I'm not mincing words. It is essential to our full participation in the blessings of the new covenant. Because apart from baptism, you cannot hear God speaking those words to you in that divinely ordained, instituted way that he chose to do that. I'm not saying he doesn't speak through his spirit indwelling us. But he attached a special significance to the word he speaks in this. And so, we can see in this wonderful reality, and this is the flip side. For, for you know, when we, people are like, oh, it's better not to marry if you can't divorce your wife for, you know, for all the reasons we thought you could. Well, actually, it's because marriage is so incredibly wonderful and awesome and beautiful that divorce and remarriage is, 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 is so, so, so wrong and so, so difficult and so not right, right? It's because of how beautiful marriage is. It, marriage is. And I'm not talking about that. We're not talking about when remarriage is acceptable and all of that. So when we come to see how amazing and beautiful and wonderful and baptism is, there comes to be a flip side to that. And it's this. The wonderful reality of what baptism is warns us of the peril of receiving baptism and then falling away from that baptism in unbelief. That's just the nature of the case. You can't have baptism be as wonderful as it is. And then that not up the ante and the stakes of receiving baptism and then using the writer of Hebrews' words, falling away from that baptism in unbelief. You saw it? We could say it this way, better in the words of Peter... And, and I've added in this context of baptism, better never to have received the sacramental sign of baptism than to receive this sign and fall away. Now, I use the word fall away, and you know, let me be clear, God saves, and true salvation can never be lost. Ever. Ever. I'm, more commi- I'm committed to that truth with all my heart, soul, my, my whole being. Because it's all about the glory of God. To suggest that true salvation can be lost is to cast aspersions on the holy God that we love and serve. And that's what I believe. Although I believe many brothers and sisters do that without intending that. Nevertheless, from the human perspective... There are people who engage in the rites of the Christian faith, who attend church every day, who have been blessed with so many blessings, who have even partaken of the sacramental sign of baptism, and then they go out from the church, and as John would put it, prove that they were never of us. But because they tasted of so much, that then means that the condemnation is all the greater. This is why we do need to be especially careful when it comes to the baptism of our young children. On the other hand, it is of course far better to receive the sacramental sign of baptism and continue by God's sovereign saving grace in the faith than to reject God's salvation and remain under condemnation. We know that the gospel and baptism are not the same thing. What Paul said, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So if baptism was essential to salvation, Paul could have never spoken like that. Jesus, and and if you're thinking, man, I I feel like you kind of said baptism is essential. I hope you haven't think I've said that. But, but again, because of our context, we have difficulty walking the biblical line. Jesus assured the thief on the cross, who we know was never baptized, 
Today you shall be with me in paradise. Flat out, there it is. So what's all the rush to baptize someone real quick if they're on their deathbed and they've never been baptized? Right? This explains then how we can encourage our children in saving faith, even when we have them wait at times to be baptized. There's a lot of tensions here that we have to work through in wisdom. On the other hand, Simon the magician was actually baptized, but later found to be still in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. And there is a warning against assuming my salvation on the basis of my baptism, right? Or for that matter, on the basis of having prayed a sinner's prayer. Because what we have done is, I believe we've in many ways substituted the sinner's prayer in the place of where baptism goes in the Bible. I'm not saying it's wrong to pray a prayer. (laughs) But there's nothing magical about a sinner's prayer, is there? And there's nothing magical about baptism either. Still, it seems safe to say that the place that many have given to the sinner's prayer is given in the Bible in your handout to baptism. And so while we live in a culture and context where it may be difficult for us to speak like this, at the very least without lots of clarification and qualification, instead of saying, repent and pray this prayer for the forgiveness of your sins, or believe and repeat after me for the forgiveness of your sins, I believe it would be better for us to learn how to say, with perhaps in our day clarifications and explanation, how to say with the Apostle Peter and with Ananias, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Or even this, repent and be buried with Christ by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, you too might walk in newness of life. As we submit ourselves, and I use that language very carefully, because Gabe did not decide, I'm going to go... I'm, I'm going to go give myself a baptism here. No. No, he is submitting himself to something. He's submitting himself to receive the word that God gives him. To receive the sign and the seal of baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit by faith. And as we do that, we hear and in fact we even see God speaking these words to us, these beautiful words. I have saved you. I have done it. You are mine. And I know, let me just, I talked about the sign and the seal. When he says, I have saved you, I have done it in the baptism. Baptism is the sign of that. When he says, you are mine, that's, that's the baptism, it's the seal. It's, as, as it were, the seal that he puts on his people. You are mine. I have done it. What then? A wonderful, in, in your handout, joyful assurance is given to all who have shared in this baptism in true repentance and in saving faith. And now, what better way to conclude a sermon on baptism than to witness our own baptism in in this? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to lay hold, to, to grasp in our hearts and in our minds the true biblical teaching on what baptism is as a sign, as a seal. To be able to 
glory and the language of the biblical writers and how they could speak saying things like get up and be baptized and wash away your sins be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins help us to be able to to embrace this with a true understanding so that we might look back on our own baptism which we are about to witness really here and hear afresh your word to us of what you have done and how we are yours through the repentance and faith that you have imparted to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.